Welcome to the 99 Topics for the CCFP Exam podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brady Bouchard. Chris Bevington, and I am a PGY3 in Sport and Exercise Medicine at the University of Alberta. Today, I want to welcome Chris to the podcast. We actually recorded this podcast last September and been thoroughly procrastinated in getting this posted. So let's just hear Chris get right into it from the start. Um, so the first one relates to a wrist injury. Uh, it's uh, a grandma, 70 years old. She slips on ice like only a grandma could, carrying groceries, and of course she she falls on that outstretched hand. Uh, so she fooshes, and she's otherwise healthy, but then has that wrist pain and uh, obvious deformity of the wrist, like a dinner fork deformity. So kind of the approach here is, what do you do? What's your priorities in management, and uh, how do you assess her? Yeah, absolutely. You kind of said she had a foosh injury up front, but uh, the most important thing when somebody comes in and you have a suspected fracture is to to get a good history of the mechanism. So, like, tell the story of of exactly how she fell, from what height she fell, did she fall onto anything, did she hit her head, did she get knocked unconscious, was she able to get up afterwards, Um, you know, what what happened in the immediate, you know, vicinity afterwards, Um, did she have to drive herself in here with, with one hand broken, does she have a lot of pain? Um, has she taken anything for pain? Is there, you know, numbness and tingling in that hand at all? I think those are kind of the first questions to start with, but mostly just, you know, an open-ended question about getting them to tell the story of, of how she ended up in here. Yeah. And, and so if uh, you talk to her, she's actually brought in with EMS. Mm-hmm. And the story was that she was carrying her groceries uh, downstairs uh um, and she slipped on ice. Um, I don't know why she was descending stairs at this point in time, but she slipped. <laughs> she fell. She fell down about three stairs. Yep. And she thinks she landed on her wrist, uh, but she had a little bit of neck pain. So at the same time, they put on uh, someone called um, EMS. They came. They put on a, a on her and brought her in with her suspected wrist injury and possibly. Uh, a c-spine injury as well gotcha fair enough so we have multiple injuries so uh right. you know this is more of a trauma case in, in a patient of this age but let's assume you've gone through your abcs and she's hemodynamically stable at her age um i get kind of more history before we kind of continue so is she on anticoagulants at all nope she's an otherwise healthy woman aside from some hypertension for which she takes ramapro but surprisingly healthy considering her 70 years nice that's pretty impressive um and no other medical conditions at all that she has uh no other medical conditions maybe she had a, a cholecystectomy in her 30s yeah that's about it yeah absolutely so i i think at this point you can try to kind of clear the c-spine clinically with your canadian c-spine rules because it's going to be very hard for her to go to x-ray and get proper films of the hand um and also the neck is a priority for you i think so this is where we rely on decision-making rules, uh, Canadian C-spine. Yeah, so exactly. Like the, the first category is you have to make sure it's applicable to your patient. Yeah. So, of course, this isn't something that's going to help for someone who's has a decreased level of consciousness, uh, non-trauma cases, uh, the unstable vitals, if they're uh, 
less than 16 years a previous c-spine injury or previously known uh, vertebral uh, disease or uh, these these rules don't apply for that person so yeah absolutely did you mention intoxicated because that's probably the most common one absolutely so that that's very important Yes, intoxication as well. Yeah, so you're not suspecting it in this patient, but I'd say more than half of the patients I see with suspected uh, neck injuries, C-spine injuries, um, are intoxicated. Um, so you unfortunately can't clear them clinically, and they often go to CT rather than sitting in the department for, for six hours plus to sober up. Um, but yeah, so the C-spine rule applied to her. So uh, first uh, rule is uh, age greater than or equal to 65 years, whether she has extremity paresthesias or dangerous mechanism. Um, so she gets a CT based on age right off the bat. Um, CT or x-ray. Uh, if you're in a CT center, I would say I generally go straight to CT because as um, the scanners uh, evolve, the radiation dose has gone down. Um, and often you'll find that getting the extension yes, down I... to C7 on x-ray um, it's, it's fairly difficult. Um, so right away, just high risk factor. She, she mandates radiography based on her age. And in this case, the mechanism, she fell down three stairs, which is five feet. So that's one of the dangerous mechanism criteria, along with diving, uh, high speed MVC. So that's greater than a hundred kilometers. Yeah. Um, or a bike, uh, struck by a, a vehicle or a collision. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's worth talking about, so it doesn't apply in this case, but say you didn't have a dangerous mechanism, you don't uh, describe paresthesias in the extremities, and you're not greater than 65 years old, which is a, a decent cohort of the patients that you suspect uh, possible C-spine fracture in. Um, then the next step is you're looking for kind of low risk factors. So if they're sitting in emergency, especially if they either drove or walked into the emergency department, um, if they have delayed right. neck pain, and no midline tenderness, then you can consider them a low risk. After that, I take the collar off, um, ask them to keep their neck fairly still, and then you get them to actively rotate their neck 45 degrees either way. Um, if they develop paresthesias or uh, worsening of their neck pain, I'd re-immobilize them and CT them. Um, otherwise, you can clear the C-spine that way. Right, absolutely. And the important thing here is it, if you have any high risk factor, even if you have those low risk factors like sitting in the eMERGE or the delayed onset neck pain, any high risk factor, you just go straight to radiography. So you ignore the other steps that could come after that. Yeah, exactly. See, the high risk steps come first. Yeah. Uh, so she gets her imaging, uh, CT or X-ray, whatever we have available. Yeah. Does it and show a fracture at all? No, it, it just shows some, um, you know, degenerative joint disease. It, her vertebral heights aren't as big as they used to be, and the discs aren't as as large either. So um, it was a, a normal. So we can get her out of the C-spine collar, get her sitting up, being a bit more comfortable, and we can have a look at this uh, hand of hers. So we look at her hand, and we see that uh, it's her right hand, happened just to be her dominant side, uh, that she's got this big hematoma uh, at the end of her, or pretty much around her wrist. It's uh, has this obvious deformity there's no broken skin uh, but you can see it it doesn't look symmetric with the other side and you, you suspect uh, a fracture in the in the distal radius area and to you know scaphoid or uh, distal ulna as well 
So before she goes to x-ray, because she has an obvious fracture, you just want to confirm that she's neurovascularly intact distal to that. I think that's something that you should always get into the habit of. Any fracture anywhere, or any possible fracture, um, just make sure they can wiggle their toes or wiggle their hands. Um, they don't have significant paresthesias. They have reasonable cap refill. Um, if that's the case, then they can go to x-ray. If not, they may need um, you know, urgent reduction before they go to x-ray. Particularly the one that I've seen not infrequently is ankles. Um, so if you have a, a pretty bad ankle fracture, uh, fracture dislocation, um, and the ankle sitting, you know, 90 degrees, they're the sports injuries you see on YouTube where you're like, oh, that looks bad. Sometimes they can come in and have a neurovascularly uh, compromised foot, um, and you just need to give it a, a good pull and uh, a, a yank over to line it up at least somewhat closer. And usually that's that's enough to uh, replace the circulation to their foot and then they can go to x-ray after that. Yes, so very important to assess neurovascular status. An easy way to do it for the upper extremity with the hand is assess median ulnar, ulna and, uh, sorry, median radial and ulnar nerve function. Yep. Um, so it, it's pretty easy to give them, uh, do the thumbs up, do the high five and the A-OK -okay sign. Um, and you can check sensory distribution along those uh, those nerves as well. And it's a quick way to check nerve, motor, and sensory function, and then cap refill or feeling for radial or ulnar pulses um, is an easy way to check for vascular compromise as well. Yep, no, that's a great point. The other thing with any fracture um, that's going to be more rare, um, but you don't want to miss it, um, any fracture, especially of a, a bigger bone, is the development of compartment syndrome six p's which i went and found again today so pallor pain out of proportion paralysis paresthesia pulse discrepancy and polar or cold those are the the red flags for compartment syndrome so she's neurovascularly intact we're saying yep we say she's neurovascularly intact uh, but as you're saying we suspect she has a coalesce fracture based on the the mechanism the foosh right um other things to be concerned about with the foosh other fractures? Thinking about um, everything in that area, so distal radius, distal on that scaphoid, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, scaphoid fractures especially, it seems to be among the highest um, in injury rates for litigation, so yeah. you don't want to miss uh, a scaphoid fracture. And just a comment on scaphoid, I found as a med student everybody got very terrified of of scaphoid fractures and oh am I going to miss one? They're super easy to manage from a primary care or emergency perspective. If they've had a mechanism where they could get it, so a foosh injury or they're painful over that particular part of their hand or anything where you think they might have a scaphoid injury, just stick them in a thumb spike a cast and x-ray them again in seven days. Problem solved. Absolutely. It's as simple as that. As long as you don't see a displaced fracture on x-ray, there's nothing really acutely you need to do other than immobilize. So yeah. you just quickly check on the snuff box, put axial load to the thumb. If they have pain with either of those and a mechanism. I, that's enough for me, at least, to have a suspected scapegoat fracture. Yeah. And I do remember from the CASA course, particularly the axial loading, I think was a particularly good test uh, for scapegoat. But honestly, if it's equivocal at all, I'll just stick them in a quick thumb spiker. Um, it's not hard to do especially if you get uh, reasonably comfortable casting um, and re-x-ray in seven days, seven to ten days. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if there's no fracture at seven to ten days, they can, the cast can come off. If not, then they continue with the thumb spike. Yes. 
yeah, it's, it's as simple as that. Um, just while we're on the topic of uh, doing imaging, right? Because yep. we, we wanted to make sure that we're, we're doing x-rays on anything that doesn't have those suspected red flags of, you know, the orthopedic emergencies, the um, compartment syndrome, the vascular compromise. Um, what, how would we order x-rays? What, what's your approach to this? Uh, the general rule is you always need two films 90 degrees apart for any joint that you're imaging. Uh, so AP and lateral. Um, depending on uh, the area that you're suspecting is fractured, an oblique film is, is useful as well. So for scaphoid, I would, always, I would always get an oblique film. But those are kind of general principles. I think the key point is never go off of just one film um, because those are the ones that will catch you. Because um, you could have a significantly displaced fracture, and if you hit it just right uh, with, with the X-ray beam, uh, it could look completely intact from one view and look embarrassing from the other view that you didn't get. Yeah, absolutely. So that's why you don't want to catch yourself on that. Do bilateral views if you need comparison. Do the 90 degrees uh, orthogonal views, so AP and lateral. Um, it can help if, if poorly localized pain as well. When we're thinking about imaging to x-ray the joint above and below, at least for kids, this is really important. And um, and then also, when we're doing our x-rays, if we have to do a reduction, um, we want to make sure we x-ray both before and after, assuming that we have the time and it's not an emergent uh, reduction need for, and then after to show that you have um, good alignment, good placement, you haven't disrupted anything important, and uh, it's satisfactory. Yeah, absolutely. And reviewing with your neighborly orthopedic surgeon or plastic surgeon, depending on the on the case, um, I think is totally reasonable. Um, I think most orthos are happy to take a quick call for advice versus a patient that they have to take and transfer and manage. Um, uh, if you're worried at all that you, your reduction isn't satisfactory or if there's something else going on, um, I think that's totally reasonable. Uh, a website I use uh, often is orthobullets com that has uh, a reasonable database of management for most fractures and importantly also has criteria for what an acceptable reduction is uh, for a lot of fractures as well. Yeah, I, I've used ortho bullets before and I, I find it's a great resource. So uh, this lady went to x-ray. Uh, what were the findings on x-ray? Uh, Basically, as you suspected, she had a 30 degrees of dorsal angulation and no articular involvement and no other bones were affected, so. And you kind of go from there. So how, how, what's your approach on, you know, reduction, um, analgesia, procedural sedation? What, what kind of things do you do? Yeah, so I, I think the, the key thing in a colleague's fracture is I want to make sure it's not comminuted right off the bat. Um, if it is, I'm going to give a call to ortho because, uh, again, at least in my experience, you're not going to get a, a great reduction necessarily. Um, mm -hmm. But these are very rarely combinated. So if she's got uh, uh, a simple Collie's fracture, but generally most of these patients need uh, analgesia of some kind. Uh, some physicians will use a full procedural sedation. I'm a big fan of nerve blocks or, in this case, a hematoma block um, if, if you feel comfortable doing that. Colley fractures are usually pretty easy to block with a hematoma block, so you can infiltrate, um, you know, five to ten mils of of uh, one percent lidocaine um, in without epi, of course, um, into uh, the area, so you you can feel for the step off of the of the fracture, 
Um, and basically you kind of, I find you just feel around with the needle tip until you can feel it bury below, um, below the margin of the bone. And, um, any fracture like this will have a big collection of hematoma, a big collection of blood, uh, between the two fragments. Um, and if you get into that area, you draw back on the needle, get, uh, some fresh blood out, um, and infiltrate, uh, like I said, five-ish, five to 10 mils into there. Um, and usually you get really good analgesia in the area and can reduce it fairly effectively. Um, if you can't do a hematoma block, um, if the fracture fragment is just impacted significantly and there's no space for a needle to get in there, um, then a full procedural sedation I think is reasonable. Um, I've never seen a Beers block done, um, but that's another thing you can do if you uh, feel like it and have the correct blood pressure cuffs for it as well. Right, absolutely. Those hematoma blocks I find can work really well if they're done correctly. And it, it's nice to be able to save them from a procedural sedation. You know, if they, if it's someone that could potentially drive themselves home afterwards, depending on the injury, it, it, it can work really well for them. Yeah, exactly. And the Collies is, is the prototypical one of that. So you, often you can get a, a, a good hematoma block for that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so that's the end of uh, that case. Grandma goes home, she uh, continues on her way, um, and we're, we're working in an emergency department here, and so we have another injury roll in the door. Um, this one happens to be Timmy. He's a 24-year-old football player, and his story is he had, he was playing football, he's a receiver, he had to jump. He missed the football, and when he came down, he had an inversion injury to his right ankle, and he had difficulty weight-bearing at the scene, and now he's in our emergency department for, um, I don't know if I specified, his right ankle. Right, gotcha. Ankle injuries are super common in sports. You'll see a lot of these. Generally, young, healthy people, uh, within a few hours and certainly within a day, um, if they have a fracture, will swell up significantly, and that can be a big clue. Um, because uh, uh, ligamentous injuries of the ankle can can present similarly. So they can be non-weight-bearing due to pain or minimally weight-bearing um, and can have tenderness over the malleola as well because that's where the ligaments attach and, and can evulse from. So you'll often x-ray these guys and they, and they won't have a fracture. Um, they'll have a ligamentous injury. Um, but the, the Ottawa ankle rules were developed to not miss fractures. Um, so to be particularly sensitive rather than specific. So going through the Ottawa ankle rules for him, uh, which I would definitely do, um, is he weight-bearing yeah. in the emergency department at all? In the department, he's able to put some weight on it, and he can take uh, four steps. Great. So he's... Yeah, so by criteria, he has to be able to take two steps um, to, uh, to meet that rule. Um, so he doesn't meet that rule. And the other two examinations for an ankle are, is he tender over the medial or lateral malleolus? Uh, yeah, so specifically, he's tender over the distal aspect of the medial malleolus over the lateral malleolus in this case. Gotcha. And then also, so he meets criteria there, and we'll go to x-ray, but if both of those are non-tender, then feeling about uh, six centimeters up uh, the medial and lateral sides as well, so up the tibia, the medial tibia and the lateral fibula um, mm -hmm. as well. If he's tender in those zones as well, he goes to x-ray. Um, right. Yeah, so he gets an x-ray in this case. Yeah, absolutely. And you can always be looking for other injuries because anything that has a mechanism severe enough to, to break one bone can definitely break two. 
um, or more for that matter. And like you said, ligamentous injuries is one thing. Um, but oftentimes, if there's enough swelling, there can be uh, there can be multiple injuries in place. Um, so in this case, um, you, when you examine him, he's he's definitely a tender over the medial malleolus. Um, and then when you examine him a little bit further up, uh, you feel his fibular head, you feel his knee, and, you know, joint above and below here. Um, and he has, he has no tenderness uh, around his the head of the fibula or the patella, and he's able to bend his knee. Um, but then going down to the foot, he has a little bit of tenderness just on the base of the, the fifth metatarsal. Yep. Uh, and then uh, other than that, the exam was pretty much normal, other than some, some bruising and some swelling. Yeah, so he needs a foot series and ankle series of x-rays as well. The other thing is what I mentioned before about ankles in particular is, uh, and, it, and it should be pretty obvious, but if he has a, a gross deformity of the ankle, make sure he's neurovascularly intact at that point as well um, and reduce pre-imaging uh, if necessary, but it doesn't sound like this is the case for him. Yeah, absolutely. And again, this, these are just clinical decision-making rules. There, there's a lot of reasons why you go straight to x-ray, as you mentioned. You know, obvious open fractures, like obvious deformities, you don't really have to use these rules. It's yeah. uh, it's pretty straightforward in those circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. So what's his x-ray show for us? Uh, so on his x-ray, he actually has, um, like when you look at the no distal uh, tibia of the right distal tibia with involvement into the tibiotalar joint. Right. Uh, and then when you look at the foot series, it appears that he has a tiny, tiny uh, on the, the base of the fifth metatarsal. Um, There's probably more due to um, like an avulsion injury, um, but other no other obvious fractures in the foot. In my practice, I'll call ortho at least for them to have a glance at the films in all ankle fractures because you can have either occult fractures or you can have... If you have any displacement at all of the uh, tibia off of the talus, um, you can have significant pain down the road, even without a fracture. If they have a syndesmotic injury um, where nothing shows up on imaging and they just have a... I wouldn't want to miss those. So, I mean, the easy answer here is, is call ortho if you want advice right. on what to do next. Um, if you have the isolated uh, base of the fifth fracture of his foot, those can be managed uh, fairly conservatively. Displaced mortise, weight-bearing in a boot for a period of three weeks or so, and then and then partial weight-bearing after that. Right, and you can have cast clinic follow-up. Um, but uh, just, just while we're on the topic of, you know, calling your, your friendly neighborhood orthopod, um, I just wanted to see what are, what are some reasons that you call orthopedics? Uh, we, like we just mentioned, you know, intraarticular fracture um, yep. or maybe a, a suspected unstable fracture. But is there any other times where you, you think to call the orthopedic surgeon? I mean, the easy answer here is that whenever you're not sure. And, uh, and honestly, for most family medicine residencies going through, you're not going to be sure for most fractures. Um, uh, Collie's fracture, I would very rarely call. A boxer's fracture, I would very rarely call. Other than that, um, you're often going to end up calling because there'll be some part of the case or some part of the mechanism or something on x-ray that you're not sure about. So uh, particularly, I find myself calling orthopedics if I suspect a fracture based on history um, and I don't see anything on the imaging. Um, so, you know, my eyes aren't trained to look for some of those occult fractures. Um, and it's always good to have a second pair of eyes on it. 
Um, and also uh, for expediency. So where we are, if we want to get them into CAS clinic or ha have some relatively urgent follow-up with ortho, uh, a phone call goes a long way um, to getting them into uh, to be seen in the next period of time versus sending a, a uh, you know, an otherwise normal referral letter and, and perhaps them not the Salter -Harris to follow up in a reasonable right? period of time. Right, yeah. Articular, uh, I would definitely call. Um, any yeah. anything through or involving a growth plate, I would call. And anything that is like displaced enough that you you worry about, right? You, you'd mentioned that if you're concerned, yeah. About so anything, anything definitely call. And intraarticular, of course, is is one that I I find myself often calling for an opinion, just because I don't want to to lead to problems down the road, just because you you have something that's intraarticular, it might may not be displaced. Yep. Uh, but you, you worry about long-term consequences with arthritis and, and really function. Yeah, exactly. Um, so often in, the, in this case, uh, it sounds like for this injury that it's a fairly uncomplicated ankle fracture. If you can uh, reduce it reasonably well, either with uh, procedural sedation or a nerve block if you're okay on doing those on the lower limb and the post-reduction films look okay, um, often ortho uh, won't necessarily need to see them urgently you can cast them um, and they can be seen in review in an outpatient clinic um, but uh, often ankle fractures can be complicated and, and uh, either need an, an open uh, reduction and fixation or uh, some other management that's that's out of your hands right so other things to mention um, kind of ATLS fracture management so um, if you take ATLS or if you're managing somebody who's in urgent trauma any uh, Hemodynamically unstable fractures should be reduced uh, early on in the process. Um, so particularly long bone like femur um, and pelvic fractures where you have a large potential space and you have a good source of bleeding. Um, those ones should be reduced and splinted early on. Yeah, one we should mention is uh, avascular necrosis and the risk of um, not identifying uh, fractures is sometimes uh, a problem for, especially when we look at the hip uh, the scaphoid we already mentioned, and then the other bone that seems to be affected is the, the, the talus. Yeah. In the yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I think it's useful to know those um, those bones in the body that have abnormal blood supplies, where right. um, if you have an occult fracture, you can you can uh, lose the blood supply to part of the bone. I, yeah, I think we got most of them. Just uh, keep in mind with the open fractures, making sure that uh, you're addressing risk of infection, um, that you're you're talking to the, the surgeon, but you're also, you know, you can irrigate and you can give tetanus prophylaxis at the same time. Yeah, and usually our orthopods around here will want you to give uh, two grams of ANSEF up front um, yep. as a one-time dose before they get transferred south. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. So I think we've covered all the objectives today, Chris. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Take care. Cheers, bye.